Hello and welcome to Adam Analyzes. My name is Adam and I'll be your host. Hopefully everybody's doing great out there and with the world that is ever-changing seemingly day by day. That actually led me to think about the year 1994. And in the year 1994, there was a big TV event on ABC. The Mick Garris directed and Stephen King adapted The Stand. So before I talk about this one, I'm going to state that I have only ever seen the movie and I never read the book. So I'm going to give a little bit of history on the book here. However, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail as far as any comparisons between the two mediums. The difference between them, I would assume, would be pretty great considering the book was originally almost 900 pages and then was in a revised edition that was well over a thousand pages. So even though this movie was a four-night event when it originally appeared on ABC, it also is six hours if you go to watch it now. So obviously a lot of stuff would probably be cut from the book to the movie. The Stand is a fantasy novel by Stephen King. It has horror elements as far as I know, but knowing what I do know about the novel, it does fit firmly into the fantasy genre. However, it is a little bit on the scary side considering it almost predicted things that are happening now. In the book, it involved a weaponized flu by the name of Captain Trips, and Captain Trips is basically a super flu. Not very many people are immune, and most of the world's population dies off. This leads the few remaining people to be divided into two sections, and that would be siding with Randall Flagg, who is essentially the devil, and then you also have Mother Abigail, who would essentially be on God's side. I don't think that either Randall Flagg or Mother Abigail are actually God or the devil. However, their representations, I guess, in a physical sense here on Earth. So the novel was written in 1978, and Stephen King envisioned it to be his Lord of the Rings. It was released at 823 pages, so I was close with my 900-page estimate. I do know that there was pages cut, there was roughly about 400 pages cut from it, and that's due to the fact that the publisher at the time thought that the book would be far too expensive for people to actually buy, so they didn't think it would be a success with having that many pages and that big of a book on shelves. Understandable, I can definitely see that, but it's kind of sad that you're forced to edit down your work and he had to cut so much from it. Thankfully, he was able to revise it in, I think, 1990 and he put the page count back up to 1,152 pages, reinstated a lot of the pages that were missing, and not only that, he changed the setting from 1985 into the 1990s, so I believe there was a couple things that were changed too, such as some of the pop culture references and such, and he almost did a little bit of a George Lucas-like revisionist history on it. I do know there are some people out there that do prefer the stand in its original released cut form, so... That was actually pretty surprising to me. I didn't know that book readers were that 
adamant about there being their original vision of something and not enjoying something that the creator goes and changes a little bit. I personally, if I was to read this today, I would want to read the complete version because I feel like that would be King's vision, whether it might be misguided or not. The novel also marked the first appearance of character Randall Flagg, and Randall Flagg will get into a little bit later as far as the way he's portrayed in the movie. However, I do know that Randall Flagg did make his way throughout a couple different Stephen King novels, so he really does seem to enjoy the Randall Flagg character as the main villain. The notable appearance of Randall Flagg is actually in the Dark Tower series, which he was played by Matthew McConaughey in the Dark Tower adaptation film. I guess it was a sequel to the books. I'm not quite sure. Again, did not read the books. And I did not see the Dark Tower film because I heard it was, well, pretty awful. But I will watch it at some point in time. But I think it's time that we go and crack into the stand film here. I personally really like this movie. I have very fond memories of this. This is almost like the fond memory I have for the original It miniseries. This is a similar thing. I really enjoyed it when I was a kid. And also that was seemingly one of the big things I looked forward to every year. I looked forward to the different Stephen King miniseries that would make their way on ABC. You had things like It that I just mentioned about, The Stand, of course, you had The Tommy Knockers, you had The Langoliers, which I know has poor special effects, but I absolutely love that one too. And then you had his original work for ABC, which was Stephen King's Storm of the Century. If you want to go one step further, there was the Stephen King TV show Kingdom Hospital, which I could not get into. I tried, but it just didn't seem like it was for me. And I don't know if it was really a wise move of Stephen King to adapt a show called The Kingdom, which I believe was done by director Lars von Trier. But who knows? Maybe someday I'll go back and give it another watch, but I really could not get into Kingdom Hospital. But either way, back in the day, when the new Stephen King miniseries was announced, I was 100% there for it, and I forgot one other one, The Shining. There was a miniseries of The Shining on ABC, again written by Stephen King and directed by Mick Garris. This is Stephen King's, I guess, his version of how he wanted The Shining to turn out. And, well, the miniseries, they're kind of hokey, I guess, because they do have that made-for-TV look about them, but I really do love them, and I love the production on them, too. Even if they are a bit hokey by today's standards, it was one of those things that I have very fond and great memories of, and I think the early to mid-90s were an absolutely great time for these TV movies. They were almost like the right entertainment for the right time. I do know that as it went on, it had diminishing returns, such as the viewership, I don't think anything was ever as big as The Stand. I think The Stand was probably where it peaked, and then it just kind of tapered out from there. I remember back in the day, this thing was huge. The Stand was an absolutely big deal, and 
the cast that they got for this is pretty amazing too. I think with the budget for a TV production, it definitely shows that they were aspiring to make something that would be near theatrical looking, even though it doesn't quite succeed as far as some of the special effects and everything. But it's definitely apparent here that they really tried and that they were really trying to create something epic. And I think in that way, there's a lot of heart behind it. And one of the big things is, again, it's the cast. I will get into the cast in just a second. I normally save this for the very end of my episodes, but I'm going to say if you've never seen The Stand, definitely put your expectations in check. Go and not expect a theatrical quality film, but know that this movie was a big event back in 1994 and definitely check it out. So I promised we would get into the casting for this movie. The cast is absolutely incredible for a TV production. Again, this states the absolute importance that this miniseries was. The cast here has such people as Gary Sinise as Stu Redman. You would know him as Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. Molly Ringwald is playing Franny. She was in Pretty in Pink, a whole bunch of John Hughes 80s films. Laura Sangiacomo from Just Shoot Me. Ozzie Davis, who plays Judge. Uh, he was in Bubba Hotep. I'm a huge fan of him in Bubba Hotep. Miguel Ferrer, you've seen him in a lot of different things. Uh, I know him from Twin Peaks, who's playing Lloyd here. Corin Nemec from Parker Lewis Can't Lose, playing Harold. Matt Frewer. You may know him as Max Headroom, playing Trash Can Man here. And Ray Walson, he is Glenn Bateman. You may know him as Mr. Hand from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Rob Lowe, Rob Lowe was in a whole bunch of different things as Nick Andros here. Bill Faberback, Faberbake, however you say his last name. Tom Cullen, M-O-O-N spells moon. A phrase that I still use to this day, and I hope that people get the reference, even though it seems like a lot of people forgot that one. Anyway, he was in Coach, and also he's probably better known as Patrick on SpongeBob SquarePants. You have Shawnee Smith as Julie. She was uh, playing the role a little over the top, I'll get into that a little bit later. Again, you may know her better as Amanda from the Saw series. There's also Warren Frost, father of Mark Frost, co-creator of Twin Peaks, and also was an actor on Twin Peaks. And then, quite possibly my favorite one here that is included as a fun little, I guess it's a cameo, but it's a little bit, slightly more than a cameo. You have John Bloom better known as Joe Bob Briggs, and in here, he's playing Joe Bob Brentwood, which I still think is funny because he's JBB, the same initials as Joe Bob Briggs. The final one here that I thought was pretty amazing that he doesn't really get billing or even mentioned a lot in this, you have Ed Harris. Ed Harris, of course, lots of different things, most notably today, Westworld. But he's in the movie too, and he's primarily only 
and I think the first and second parts, but even still, it's pretty great to see him here. The one actor in this one, I can't really recall seeing him in anything else, and that's Adam Stork, who is playing musician Larry Underwood in this here. And, well, I think he does a good job as well. I just can't recall anything else that I've seen him in. You also have some fun things from other actors, such as Max Wright, who would better be known as Willie Tanner from ALF. And then you have some pretty awesome cameos here from some directors, which I thought it was pretty amazing because I completely forgot that they were in this. You have John Landis, you have Sam Raimi, and then you also have former NBA star Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You have Kathy Bates. You even have Jeff Goldblum as a voice in the movie. Oh, and I almost forgot, uh, director Tom Holland was also in this movie. And you may be wondering about who played Mother Abigail and who played Randall Flagg. Well, Ruby Dee played Mother Abigail, and I think she does a pretty impressive job here, especially since she's covered under prosthetics and aging makeup in order to make her look like she's over 100 years old. I think she does a great job, and I really like the portrayal and kindness that she gave her part. She's so good that I think with the way actor Jamie Sheridan played Randall Flagg, I think it was a great contrast between the, the two and the two different sides that one would be a pure good and the other would be a pure evil. With that said, I can't recall seeing either actors in anything else. I'm sure I have throughout the years. However, I can't recall it at the moment. I do want to say that I think Jamie Sheridan did a great job as Randall Flagg. I enjoyed him with his mullet cowboy look <laughs> and his denim on denim, wearing a denim jacket and denim jeans uh, as a cowboy character. I think he did a great job with being that demon that's kind of like charming to everybody and almost seems like a great option compared to maybe what Mother Abigail would be offering her followers and her on the good side. I think, uh, I think he did a great job, but it's just kind of weird because for whatever reason, I was always thinking that it was Randy Quaid and... Even with watching this now, I can see Randy Quaid as being Randall Flagg. I think that that would have worked as well. But, I mean, joke casting aside, I think both of those roles were casted really well. And I think that goes to show that this movie did really have a great near Hollywood-like production. So to the best of my knowledge that this follows the book pretty well because it was adapted from Stephen King taking it from his own novel. I know that there are some fairly significant plot points that were taken out and probably had to be changed for this movie, but I think that's okay, just based on the sheer size of the novel. I would say the actual heart of the story, I would say, remains. The Captain Trips virus is basically released, and, well, it's how people cope with most of the world's population dying and that's what the relation to today as far as a lot of things that are happening happening with this coronavirus 
I know there's been conspiracy theories that it was created in a lab and whatever. I don't think that's the case. However, what if? And that's what makes the stand relevant today and also makes it a somewhat scary watch because there are a lot of things that we're experiencing right now that have actually happened in the movie. So it's kind of funny how it predicted all of that. I would say that something like this will probably happen again years down the road, but hopefully we'll get over it soon. But with that said, with the actual heart and meat of the story, with everybody coping with the virus and the world seemingly changing over the over a couple months, we have the little bits of the movie that kind of falter, and that's mostly because of the fact that the pacing of the movie is incredibly off. I would say that the parts two and three kind of drag a little bit. I wouldn't want to see anything cut from the movie. However, I could see where people may get bored in the middle stretch. The definite highlights of this miniseries are the first and fourth part. And it's not that it's exactly boring. It just kind of feels like it's slightly padded. If I, I don't know if that's the best way to say it but it feels like they were padding it out so that we could relate to and like these characters a little bit more and maybe understand some of the motivations of some of the more villainous characters, such as Lloyd in the movie. You could maybe understand a little bit more of where he's coming from, even though a lot of the screen time is really devoted to the group, the good group, uh, Mother Abigail and how she sends Stu and company out on a quest to confront Randall Flagg to make this stand, so to speak. And I think that's where the Lord of the Rings idea and reference comes into play. The fact that they walk, uh, they don't take anything with them. It's similar to the same type of trip that Frodo and Sam took in Lord of the Rings. So I can definitely see where the Lord of the Rings influence really comes through here. And I think it plays out really well. It's just like I said, it feels a little padded. I do want to say that as much as I enjoyed the Randall Flagg character, I like the fact that he was used sparingly. He didn't show up very much. A lot of times in the movie he's shown as just a raven that is basically just watching. And I really like that because it made his appearances a little bit more impactful later on in the film. I think the acting across the board by the various cast here I think is extremely strong. And I think Mick Garris's direction is almost perfect for the type of movie this is. It's a miniseries that had some huge aspirations to be something bigger and better than what it was before. And I really think that this is probably one of the biggest miniseries events next to maybe like Roots or something like that where it seems like it was the biggest thing on TV that year and with that I just applaud it and I know Mick Garris has been subject to like some some bad movies and I wonder why he never got like more recognition or more work because I really do like Critters 2 I think Critters 2 is a super fun movie and I do like Fuzzbucket, even though I know Fuzzbucket is not a true, wonderful, artistic film, but it's a film I have fond memories of from my childhood. 
if I had to say that there was one actor or actress that I thought was kind of bad in the movie, it would be Shawnee Smith. And remember I said about her from, I guess, the Saw series. Well, she was also in the Blob remake. I think it was like 88 or 89 when the Blob remake came out. I forget what year it was. But she wasn't bad in the blob she wasn't really that great in saw i don't think she plays crazy very well and well in here i think she goes way too far over the top and i think some of her acting should have been dialed back a little bit or done with another take because i really don't like when she's attacking nick and tom earlier in the movie and it seems like her yelling is just really excessive and way too far over the top and it doesn't even really fit the movie with the way her performance is and it comes back later in like the fourth the fourth episode of this miniseries and again she's just extremely weak i don't know if it's just straight up bad acting or if she was just maybe not right for the role but Either way, I think she's probably the only one that's like really not that great in this movie. And again, I don't like to rag on anybody's work, but uh, I could have done without her scenes. This here was a definite pleasure to revisit. It was one that I had, like I said, some great memories of. And thankfully, my rewatch of this did not tarnish that at all. The last time I watched this movie was probably back in, I think, 99 or... So some, somewhere around there, I remember I was in middle school and for whatever reason I wanted to see it and well, I bought the VHS copy at Walmart. It came on two cassettes and I remember the picture quality was terrible. So I'm going to recommend that if you do watch The Stand, I recommend picking up the Blu-ray because while some scenes are great as far as the picture quality, others are somewhat soft and don't really look that great. It really is a step up from anything we ever had before as far as presentation-wise with this movie. And I think the movie definitely deserves to be seen in the best picture quality possible. But the special effects, you know, generally have to be redone whenever you're converting something of an older nature, especially depending on how the effects were achieved. And I do want to say the special effects here in the movie Yes, they're dated, and I know some of the CG-ish looking stuff. I don't know if it's quite CG. I think it's CG. It does look rather poor. It looks almost like some of the poor CGI in the movie Lord of Illusions. It kind of gave me that kind of feel to it. But again, the film material elevates it from anything that actually holds it back. So if you didn't take my advice from earlier where I told you to basically to just go out and watch it, again, just simply go out and watch it. Keep your expectations in check. Know that it was a made-for-TV film, and I think you will enjoy it. I will warn you, it does get a little preachy towards the end, and it is a little heavy-handed with its religious stuff. I personally am not a super religious person, but it was not enough to ruin my enjoyment with this film and hopefully this will inspire you to go out and watch it or hey 
maybe it'll inspire you to read a book. As I know myself, after this rewatch, I am tempted to maybe tackle this one, even though I know it's going to be a long read for me. And, you know, I almost forgot there is actually going to be a remake of The Stand coming up, I guess, either a little later this year or next year. And it'll be on CBS All Access. It'll be a 10-hour adaptation. I believe it's going to be 10 one-hour episodes. So, I don't know. We'll have to see, uh, we'll have to see how that one's going to turn out. But anyway, with that being said, I think I'm going to close out this episode. As a reminder, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam underscore analyzes. Also, if you don't do the whole social media thing, drop me an email at adamanalyzespodcast at gmail.com. I do take suggestions and I will do my best to accommodate that request. I have a very exciting announcement as well. Season 3 of Inner Honest Opinion will be starting up very soon. Will and I are hard at work on trying to uh, hammer out some episodes for you guys and everything. And, well, I think it's going to be a fun and interesting time. And the last thing here, if you have a free moment, please leave me a five-star review at the podcast listening platform of your choice. It'll allow me to continue making episodes for you guys, and it'll also help me reach new listeners. Plus, you know, I love those digital hugs. And with that being said, remember, be kind and good night.